Welcome to Nice Work, a podcast of the Super Nice Club, where we're just trying to make the world 10% nicer. I'm your host, Todd Brilliant, and this week's guest, this this week's guest is super nice human Ray Seahorn. Ray is a stage, film, and television actor best known for playing the strange, mysterious, and funny attorney Kim Wexler in AMC's smash show Better Call Saul. She's also appeared in NBC's Whitney, uh, Franklin and Bash on TNT, I'm With Her on ABC, and dozens and dozens of other shows and films. She also co-stars in Colin West's soon-to-be-released sci-fi comedy Linoleum. So just add that one right now to your watch list because it's going to be an awesome movie. Linoleum. Got it? Cool. If you're interested in or engaged in the pursuit of success, of, of mastery in your craft, in your career, or, or even just your hobby, this will be an hour well spent. Ray reminds us that success is in the eye of the beholder. That is, even the most talented actors, and Ray is certainly among the most talented actors working today, they worry that their careers could be cut short at any moment, just like the rest of us. And as you'll learn, that fear is a double-edged motivator. We also talk about uh, COVID exceptionalism. Talk about a lot of stuff. COVID exceptionalism, animated TV, graphic novels, what a yellow light means. You think you know, but I bet you don't. I bet you don't know. Um, Oh, the LAX butthole. We talk about him. And of course, her wonderful character, Kim Wexler, and the upcoming final season of Better Call Saul. What's going to happen to Kim? Inquiring minds want to know. But before we get into the talk, I'd like to thank you for listening, for supporting this podcast, for supporting the Super Nice Club, for getting behind the the real simple idea of making the world a nicer place because, damn it, we really need it. If you're new to the podcast and the Super Nice Club, you can learn more about us uh, on Instagram, Facebook. We're skipping we're skipping TikTok. At, at Super Nice Club, just type it in. Uh, at superniceclub.com, you can get details about our mission to make the world just 10% nicer. And that's just the start, all right? That's just... That's where we can get quickly, pretty sure. Also at the website, there's super nice merchandise like shirts, hats, stickers, and other cool stuff to make, to make, no, to help, to help you spread the word in your community around this simple idea of making, there we go, that's where the make comes in, of making the world a nicer place. If your nice merchandise doesn't help start nice conversations with strangers, you get your money back, no problem. You can also text, um... Linoleum. <laughs> you can text linoleum right now to 310-421-0393. 310-421-0393 to join our Super Nice Club Insider Community, where you'll get invited to events, giveaways, lots of giveaways, and cool stuff. Not always Super Nice Club stuff, weird stuff. Um, it's great. Super Nice Club Insider Community. Text linoleum to that number. And if you like this podcast, will you pretty please subscribe and pass it along to your friends? Post it up on your socials. Awesome. Thank you. All right, here we go. Turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to Nice Work with Ray Seahorn. Ray, Ray Seahorn, welcome to Nice Work. I'm honored to have you on. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. Hey, where are you right now? 
I'm in my partially converted garage that is also my kids' uh, hangout area, but this half is, and this is my desk and my art studio. Oh, nice. And this is where I do most of my self-tapes. And yes, that's like an old crap um, window unit AC. And, and it's very clearly a garage. You can still see like the, the it's, it's not even converted. Like the garage door is still there. This is like that show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I just get a little peek in there. It's incredible. Yeah, I don't think this would be under Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. My <laughs> AC unit and my garage door opener. Um, but yeah. When did you come out to LA? How long have you been out here? I just got here. I'm always fascinated by when people got here. And I know why. I got here. Like when? A year ago, a year ago, like almost a year ago to the day. No, December 27th. Oh, wow. Okay. Coming close. Yeah. I always feel like I just got here, but I got here. <laughs> I moved here in 2002, which is very weird to me because I, I always feel like an East Coaster. And it's not about having um, ill will towards Los Angeles, which as an East Coaster, often you come here and you just keep comparing because it's a very different city than any other. I had, I had been working and living in um, Washington DC for years and years and years and then New York. And so you can come here with a, a real push and like snobbery about what it means to be a metropolitan city. And, and I still miss commercial and residential mixed more. I like that feeling mm -hmm. in the city. I like having to butt up against all different swaths of people and life. I miss public transportation and also for what that does for the mind. I miss change of seasons. Now I sound like I am bitching about Los Angeles, but I had to put it aside to say, you know, for every time you're like, where's the old history and the old architecture? It's like, well, I actually love mid-century modern architecture and it's gorgeous out here because, because of the weather, like many of those architects came to Southern California, you know, to build the case study houses and uh, the Eichlers and all of that. So once I decided to love LA for what it is, you realize that it's, um, it's really a lovely, incredible place to live. I mean, I, I, it's not lost on me that during quarantine and lockdown and this terrible time we're going through that I have, I, I can go walk on a beach. I could go hike. I can go take a walk and it's not snowing or raining almost ever. <laughs> you know, so there's, there's a lot to be said for what we get out here. I'm still getting used to that. I know it's December and it's 70 degrees out right now. Yeah. I was outside going, oh, I got to get some vitamin D and, you know, take my jacket off, get more skin exposed. This is amazing. But no seasons, no fall. Yeah, and that it bothers me. Range. Because I'm not saying it's bad. I like that. I there's no sense of hibernation and renewal. And you know, yes, it's an entertainment industry town, and the entertainment industry has been sort of youth obsessed historically. Some of that is changing incrementally, which is nice, but at any rate, that it kind of makes me laugh that you do see people here and it's not everybody. And, and there's stereotypes and terrible people in, in every city. There's also pockets of lovely, incredible, wonderful people here. But yes, sometimes you see the stereotypes if you're walking around in certain neighborhoods of the crazy amounts of plastic surgery and the 60 year olds dressing like 20 year olds and just people refusing to accept age. And don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not saying I would never do anything. Those years may, be, may be coming, but I'm just saying like, 
that that vice grip on like, I don't want to just look five years better. I want to look 20 forever. I keep right. looking at that and comparing it to the fact that it's because there is no honoring of time moving forward here. We're in stuck in one season for 365 days a year. There's no like, it's spring, be something new. No. <laughs> That is a great way to put it. The the refresh and renew cycle is sort of missing when you get down south far enough. Yeah, and like honoring like another trip around the sun and four seasons going by also means another whole year of investigating empathy and, and becoming wiser and falling down and getting back up and coming out of tragic circumstances or having um, beautiful ones and understanding that 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 will have its own ebb and flow the next year. Like some, sometimes I miss that actually being presented as weather. <laughs> well, until the last 10 years or so, I think that LA had seasons. They were just television seasons, right? Uh-huh. In the fall season, right? And now it's streaming uh-huh. just all year round. So you've lived all over, right? You were a Navy kid, moved around a lot. I was not I was not a Navy kid, but uh, we were civilian. But my dad worked for Naval Intelligence, and that did instigate our moves. Correct: Arizona, Japan, Virginia Beach, Norfolk, and then Washington D.C. was of my own accord. I went to George Mason University and started becoming a part of the theater scene in D.C. pretty early on, and then professionally worked there for twelve or so years, um, and then moved to New York, and then L.A. And then L.A. I like to meet people, I think it's selfishly for my own ongoing uh, self-therapy, but people who moved around a lot when they were younger. Mm. You know, um, I did 10 schools, three different high schools, just mom and I were bouncing all over the place. I know. But overall, I mean, what now, do you are think? Are yours military related or no? No. My dad was in the was in the Navy, but World War II, way back when, submarines, whole different thing. No, my mom just moved around for, for work. Overall, though... I love the experience. I feel like it had some, it was difficult in school and, you know, all that kind of stuff, the new kid all the time. But would you have rather had it any other way or do you feel like it did something for you positive? I mean, I think that's, imp- it's impossible to answer would a different road have uh, gotten me somewhere, you know, I I got a BA going in thinking that I wanted to be an art, a visual artist and paint for a career secretly harboring this intense interest in acting and took an acting class and switched because you had to take an elective in the arts that was not your major. So it was like, I took some dance and I took some acting and I was 18 and George Mason is is a great school, but it by no means was these incredible conservatories for acting, uh, all of which I coveted and secretly was like, oh my God, it would be such a dream to go there. And and I would still, (laughs) given a whole, given enough time and another life and another, and enough money, I would 100% want a master's degree at NYU, um, you know, or Yale or something, if I could get into any of them. But that being said, this is my long answer of, it's one of those things where I think, well, I have a career and a life and what I have is, is has to be a result of exactly the choices I made. Not that we are only a summary of our choices, but right. you know, it's kind of hard to sit around wishing like, oh, if I had grown up in one place, I wonder, I don't know. I mean, I have anxiety issues, so maybe I would have, who knows, maybe I would have less anxiety. I definitely have issues with ever feeling like it's okay to completely be settled, but I didn't move as much as you. I think that's actually more attributed to my vocation of that mm-hmm. constant fear of like, well, 
because you hear all these stories of like so and so bought a Ferrari when he got a pilot and then it was canceled. What a <laughs> so I'm forever like can't buy extra flip flops because you're just gonna jinx it and you're gonna be fired on Monday and be homeless. So that's a separate tale. <laughs> I think that moving around a lot did make me, um, and I'm always getting this wrong word wrong. Am I adaptive or adaptable if I am quick to bloom where I'm planted? Like I can figure my shit out wherever you, wherever I land. So is yeah. that adap- does that make me adaptive or adaptable? I think it's adaptive, just, right? Adaptable yeah. would mean you can adapt me. A bull, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bull, so I'm bull. adaptive, right? right. I'm quickly okay. adaptive. That's what I would say. And I think that is from moving around. I'm very, very curious and interested in people and places wherever wherever I am. I want to, I'm not very good at small talk. I immediately want to find the real people in the room and the real sources of uh, light and humor and then figure out like, okay, how do I, how do I, um, how do I succeed here? How do I flourish here? How do I function here? And not in a overly like having an agenda everywhere you go, but just in a comfort level. How to get or, quickly grounded and rooted in the new space. I think that's yeah. been, that's been the most common answer that I've gotten when I talk with people who moved around a lot. Um, especially if they were military kids, because mm-hmm. that's just a classic way of moving around a lot. People just say, yeah, I, mm-hmm. for all the difficulties, I did learn how to, get my bearings really quickly among the new, you know, in the new city, at the new school, among the new peer group, things like that. doesn't mean you necessarily were like the most popular kid, but. No, but you can, you can actually end up being quite chameleon like, which has a lot of pros and then a few cons that you just have to be careful of because you can feel sometimes like you, you're not entirely sure of what your real voice is because you're so adaptive to like, oh, this situation requires this of me. So I'll be this person and not, it's not fake. They're just like, I think all of us have so many different sides of ourselves and we speak differently if we're speaking to our partners versus we're in a work environment or whatever. But yeah, I just mean like, I think there can be some drawbacks from being incredibly adaptive. (laughs) Well, here's to adaptability, which is kind of a segue into just what's going on. We can't can't do a podcast right now on December, whatever it is, 17th. I think it's 17th Mm -hmm. uh, without talking a little bit about COVID because I just read. Wait, what? I know. Did you hear about this thing? I just read that we are now LA, the global epicenter, and two people are dying every hour. Which sounds crazy. I mean, it's, it is. It's 50 people a day. But we've had to adapt and readapt to this and try to figure out what the the um, appropriate responses are, what we're supposed to be doing. Sh- should we go grocery shopping? Should we have one friend over? All these kind of things. What's your? Are you getting tested all the time? What's your sort of, oh, fuck, there's a microbe in the air and, and maybe it's on my mail. Maybe it's in my email. I, you know, what's your level of paranoia on a one to 10 for COVID? I mean, first of all, it's just, it's just devastating to sit here and think like, I'm not going to go visit my, uh, my mother and sister back in Virginia. And that is upsetting to me. Um, so I'm trying to figure out like mailing them stuff. I'm like, uh, shipping is ridiculous and blah, 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 blah. But the fact that two, two families at least are losing a loved one right now, just in LA. Yeah. Just here. Maybe I'm a, it's just like, it's, 
I can't even imagine all of the anxieties and the issues that I'm going through and my family and my kids having to do Zoom learning. Um, none of us, none of us is sick. None of us is dying. None of us is not able to go hold our grandmother's hand while she has her last couple of minutes. I mean, it's just, it's, it's overwhelming. Um, I am towards the uh, more conservative risk averse among the people I know scale, but not the most extreme. Like I, I, you know, I do have two friends that um, have not left their home this entire time. And well, one does the grocery shopping, but she's doing the whole uh, thing where you come in through the mud room and all clothes are taken off and going in the washing machine and you're taking a shower before you touch your child or your husband. Um, and there's still Clorox encounters and all of that. You're putting your phone in the mailbox? You don't see any friends, no backyard, 10 feet away cocktail. And then I've got some people that I know in my life that are really pushing the boundaries of what a backyard safe gathering of people, you know, it's just, it's so hard because everyone wants to, everyone's thinking their little thing doesn't count. They're little, you know what I mean? Like, no, I'm being, I'm being totally, I'm being totally safe. I was talking to this woman the other day. She's like, you know, I mean, I literally don't go anywhere except to get a pedicure. I was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) (laughs) You know, or I had a couple of friends over in my backyard and we ate at a, at a table, but it was, but it was all outdoors and they're all super safe families. They're all being really, really safe. And I'm thinking, yeah, but each of them has their thing that they're not accounting. I mean, I just, I just came from CVS and I wore a mask and I did hand sanitizer. I didn't wear gloves. Uh, I think I was, I think it was very safe, but I'm not, I didn't have to go. I went to buy Christmas cards. I could have definitely right. like said like forget it. I'm not going. Um, so I think I'm being. I think I'm being pretty safe as far as paranoia level. I don't walk around, and I can be a massive worry wart. I don't walk around constantly terrified that I'm going to get it, and I don't even walk around constantly terrified that my family's going to get it. I I wish certain members of my family would be a little safer, and that bothers me, but that discussion goes nowhere. Everybody believes that they are doing what's right for them. And I have not found anybody that was really swayed by guilt. (laughs) Unfortunately, you know, I'll try to just point out like, well, you know, there's a big spike. So whatever you were doing two months ago, that was enough is currently not enough. I'm doing a little more now than I was two months ago because it was like one in 20, I'm making this up, but it was something like one in 17 people or one in 26 people now have it. And you realize like, you have to take this seriously. Like everywhere you go, probably someone has it. Yeah. It's the exceptionalism, the, the exceptionalism that you were talking about earlier. And I've been guilty of it, especially earlier on. Like when it first hit, I feel like we were all way more paranoid. We were leaving our groceries outside for like 72 hours yeah. or whatever. Some people, you know what I mean? All that. Now. cereal boxes until they were like disintegrating. And now it's actually everywhere and we're much less. So the exceptionalism, I, I don't know, does it ever make you feel like the jerk? Friends want to hang out and you're because th- I've had this, you know, friends want to hang out and you're like, yeah, no, because COVID. No. And you kind of feel like maybe you're being the dark cloud where everybody no. else is just happy and carefree. No. I totally don't. Well, there's, I missed like a, I missed a friend's 40th birthday where she had a girlfriend who had a really large yard that could handle six people literally being six feet away. And I felt bad 
and it probably was safe. It was. No one got sick, but she was lovely when I just said, like, I just, I'm just uncomfortable because I tried something like that. I tried to do one little party-ish thing, and I don't mean party like the ones that are being broken up by the police. I just mean for me, it was more than four people. And, um, you know, everyone was supposed to be outside, but then if you need to go to the bathroom, you go inside, and then suddenly some of whoever went to the bathroom ran into another friend. So now there's some groups that are now hanging inside and this, that, and the other. And I got so... I don't think they were doing anything wrong. I just realized I need to not give a shit about thinking if I look like a jerk. The truth that I realized that night is I'm uncomfortable. And these people love me enough that they'll be okay with me saying that. Because unfortunately, I kept hiding in corners and like walking away from people who were talking to me. I was like, oh, oh my God, I told you guys, I'm just going to refresh my drink. And I would go they have like a bar and I would do it to get away from people. Well, cut two hours later, I'm like in a dark corner with a plant now, like drunk because I've been like so <laughs> freaked out the whole time. And I was like, okay, clearly I need to just come clean with people. Cause I, and I haven't, I haven't done it since I don't feel like the jerk. I feel more that I need to watch my policing of other people. I'm very quick to like go, oh, can you believe so-and-so did bloody blood? Like, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard for me that we're not all wanting to just do this together. <laughs> I had a weird one on the trail last week, went out, tried to do the hike thing, got up there. I don't remember where it was, Temecula Canyon, and was like, whoa, there's just way too many people out here. I'm not feeling comfortable. People are huffing by without masks on. I'm like, all right, we're going to turn around. This is this was a bad idea. Thought it might be a bad idea. It's a bad idea. So we're walking back. And I know this isn't very super nice club, but and this is what I struggle with all the time, like doing the super nice club and not acting nice. It's it's a it's a daily battle for me. Um, but the fact that you're like, thinking about it and wanting to reflect on that is working on it, working on it. Right? It just wasn't my. So this couple is is walking by us really close, panning heavily, and I just and I said I seriously, I said it really nicely. I said, you guys might want to think about wearing masks. Because this trail is four feet wide. That's all I said. I said it nicely. And and it, and she turned around to me and she said, Elon Musk. What? Yeah, she said, Elon Musk. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I just said, is an idiot? Question mark. Yeah, what, you know. what? Well, because Elon is, is, a, is a pretty known... I know he wanted to open it back. Regulation. Yeah, he's, he's, oh, he's kind of a, a fully a COVID denier. He's somewhere on that scale, I guess. I mean, maybe more than I thought. If he that was, was her retort, yeah, yeah, some sort of symbol, right? Like that's a symbol for you're full of shit, Elon Musk. I'm like, all right. Anyway, I thought it was kind of weird. That's <laughs> all. I think it's um, insane that people aren't wearing masks. There was a great article today. Um, where was it? I can't remember. That was talking about like after 9-11, <laughs> can you imagine like groups of people going like, I am not taking my shoes off at the airport. That That's a that's uh, taking away my civil rights. No, we all decide, we all identified uh, a threat. So here's how we're going to solve it. And we're all going to pull together. And it's like, oh, okay. But like, no, uh, you know, mask like can't figure it out. I w- and I had to fly recently. I was very scared, but I went to do a job. One of my first jobs I've had since the pandemic actually being on a set and we were all getting tested every three days and we were put in a bubble in this hotel and it was very safe. We had nobody get sick. We were very proud of that tiny, tiny crew. 
um, in uh, the Hudson Valley. The flight, JetBlue is lovely. Their air filter system is uh, one of the best. I kept a mask on, but they have like this incredible HEPA filter that's like cleaner than me standing around in my living room. And everyone was very nice and very respectful. And everyone wore masks and nobody was angry. The airport, on the other hand, LAX, was like the security line. The The LAX employees are bringing absolutely incredible and lovely. But they've got these little footprint stickers everywhere, right? And these signs saying, here's what six feet distance looks like. Now, I, going back to the times of like loving Lego sets, I love to follow directions. Like, I love it. (laughs) I actually feel like empowered and creative and free with boundaries. That's who I am. So, um, so I'm like loving my little sticker with the feet mark on it. And I'm making sure I'm exactly on it. We're moving along and moving along. But as soon as we get to security and putting your stuff in the bin, the guy in front of me wasn't done doing his bins. So even with no COVID, I don't ram up people's butts. I don't think it's a kind, nice thing to do. So right. I'm waiting. And I do think this person could be a little better organized, but I've had my days. So I'm just like, it's fine. We're all, we're all going to be fine. And the guy behind me is like, move up, move up, move up. And he's like breathing on my neck. It's like so close. I said, sir, I'm just trying to give him some distance and it'd be great if I had some distance. And he goes, that's ridiculous. I was like, and I'm thinking like, that's clearly there's, there's, this is not a conversation to engage in. Cause if that's your response to me, like we're not going to get anywhere. So I just ignore him. He's continually shoving up right against me. I get myself in the bin. It comes out the other side and I had three bins of stuff. Cause it was like a jacket and then the laptop stuff, you know, has to be separate. And then the shoes, they were the tinier bits. So I'm just trying to wait because I, because otherwise they all, everybody knows this. You get a, like a massive log jam and then everything goes flying and hits the other. <laughs> so I'm yeah. trying to do the right thing and wait for myself. He butthole grabs. All, I'm the wrong person for your podcast, aren't I? So like, no, 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 no. He touches all of my stuff. He scoops up all of my stuff and puts like, practically tosses it in the the extra bins that are at the end, basically to make like hurry up and get out of the way. I was like, please don't touch myself. And, and, um, he's, I, what did he say? It doesn't matter. Either of these two are maybe the worst thing you could say to me anyway. And it doesn't, they're interchangeable. It was either relax or calm down. Mm. (laughs) I was just like, and my fiance, Graham will always tell me, he's like, be careful if you like snap back at somebody. Like what if they put it on YouTube and, I have such a long, long fuse that I, I told Graham, I said, honestly, the times I have said anything to people, I wish they would put it on Twitter. Cause I feel like everyone would be on my side. <laughs> Go Ray. Yeah. said that guy. <laughs> but exactly. But instead, instead I'm bitching to you about it six weeks later, because in real life, all I said was, ah, 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 and then moved. Well, he's, he's probably listening, you know, you, you probably just put him in his plates. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. We'll, we'll lead with that in all the marketing. Is this you? <laughs> Does this describe you? Were you at LAX on? <laughs> you know, there's, you know, there's going to be at least some people listening though, that are like, oh, I know that guy. That's probably uncle Jim. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> he's always like that. Yeah. Gets invited to the airport. <laughs> my, my, uh. My sources at WikiLeaks or Wikipedia, same thing, different thing. Wikipedia, tell me that you are a big fan 
of the absolutely amazing B. Arthur. So I, yeah. I did just want to ask you because we'll get into it. Like, what is it that fired you up about her originally? Like before you knew anything about her? Well, when I was growing up, um, I used to sneak watching TV late at night, uh, get up and watch it after I was told to go to bed. And then I would do anything to earn TV time. <clears throat> like if you got straight days, you could do homework watching TV. Like I would do anything to earn TV time. I was obsessed with storytelling. And that at that time, Nick at Night was not children's programming. It was old, usually half hour programs. It was Maud and um, Hazel in uh, Mary Tyler Moore show. I can't think of all of them. Um, uh, Family Circus was that? Is that the, that's something? Something, right? The one where they're like she, the girl has a doll named B, and they have oh. double doors to an apartment. What was that? Yeah, Family, well, family Circus. Family Affair. Yeah, Family Affair. Yeah. I was obsessed with these shows and I think part of it was there was a wider represent, even though there was a, some, you know, 50s, 60s ideals, but Mary Tyler Moore show, I remember, and Rhoda and Maud. I know that even at that age, I think I was probably 12 or 13. I, I recognized that this was a different and broader representation of women that I was seeing on at that time, 80s, American half hours, you know, that had right. to go into that land of women all looking a very particular way. Um, <laughs> and uh, I loved, I probably wasn't old enough to understand. I know there was the famous abortion ish uh, episode they did. I don't remember thinking heavily about the politics. I just remember thinking that her timing, I probably didn't even know the word timing, but mm -hmm. the fact that I would start laughing at something that B. Arthur, I would start laughing at B. Arthur's reaction. I would, the anticipation of what her reaction was going to be to somebody doing something stupid before she even entered when you're like, oh my God, oh my God, she's going to come in. Oh my God. And you're dying laughing. And me realizing that there has to be, and I didn't know enough then to know the craft involved with it. I just knew some people are more believable as this character and some people are so believable and so finely tuned telling a story that, that every week I come back, I am cumulatively getting to know you to the point where I'm laughing, thinking abstractly about things you might say or react to now. And uh, I was just fascinated by her. And then, you know, uh, Golden Girls. I mean, she's brilliant and every, everybody in Golden Girls is brilliant, by the way. I got to work with Betty White once and I thought I was going to pee my pants the entire time. She's so brilliant. Uh, I made her tell me um, a Mary Tyler Moore story and it was about Ted Knight, which thrilled me because I also am a massive Ted Knight fan. Um, he apparently... Oh, I'm probably not supposed to tell a Betty White story. I will let Betty tell her Ted Knight story. <laughs> okay, <laughs> have, have Betty tell her Ted. I, you know, I should. I have a. I have a Golden Girls zip up hoodie that I should have worn for this instead. True story. Anybody out there that hasn't yeah. seen it, please. True story. It, that show totally stands up. There are some shows that don't completely stand up. Golden Girls does. Taxi is still. Oh my god. His yeah. Derek, it's brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. We talked a lot about Andy Kaufman in the last, no, two weeks ago podcast on play. Oh, really? Well, what about, um, why am I blanking on his name that was later famous for uh, Back to the Future? The the alcoholic. Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the professor. What's his name, though? Um, um, 
Ah. But uh, yeah, when when he tries to get his driver's license and <laughs> and um they the whole he he's so nervous taking the written test that he asks everyone to go with him to the test. And uh but they're like we can't help you though. We can't cheat. Um and it's like Judd Hirsch and Mary Lou there. Uh, I think the whole cast is there, but he's, you know, at a little like desk trying to take it. And he's I mean, he's an alcoholic, and but they fully made this a character. And he's whispering over to them, um, what are you supposed to do? It's either a yellow light or a yellow yield sign. I forget. What do you what do you do when you when you pull up to a yellow light? And they're like, stop it, quiet. We can't, we can't help you. And he keeps asking. So finally, Judd Hirsch says, um, he goes, ah, and he whispers, slow down. And <laughs> so the guy answers, what do you, the joke goes on, look it up on YouTube. It goes on back and forth maybe 15 times until he is going, what? His Christopher name, Lloyd. His name's Jim on the show. Christopher Lloyd. Christopher, yes. Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd. Brilliant, brilliant, yeah. brilliant. You, you, had to, you had to do that stuttering talk for me to get it. What? Yeah. Do. Uh, so yeah, B. Arthur was one of the first people in my Mary Tyler Moore that I was like, ha, and Ted Knight, um, Madeline Kahn, where you're just yeah. like, what makes me wonder about this person when they exit their scene? I'm still going like, well, I wonder where she went. I wonder what she eats. I wonder what shoes she had. And I was like, they're making three dimensional people. And my mother was a, is a great storyteller. My dad was a great storyteller. My sister is that might just be from being from the South, but um, just those people that can spin a tale and, you know, and, you know, as a writer, when you can really just build a car and put people in at point a and drive them to point B and they're like, what just happened? How did we get here? And those performers were just some of the early ones that I just, I cherish. They stood out. They were not, the dumb girlfriend whose most interesting trait was the dude she's standing next to. That's, that's, that's well put. Yeah. My mom was a big fan. I just, as a kid, she would, it was Maude and Mary Tyler Moore before that. I remember Mary Tyler Moore probably when I was three or four years old, that show, that was her jam. And then reading that, that B was uh, one of your inspirations brought me back to all of that. And uh, like you said, and not everybody knows, but you mentioned the abortion show she was like a super nice early champion like uh, she would talk about drug use menopause alcoholism uh women's liberation gay rights she was a big lgbtq ally yeah she's pretty awesome you know it's yeah and we still talk to norman lear for all of the writing and including all of that in the in the shows yeah but it's bummer because when was that when was mod 19 Uh i mean we're, we're pushing 40 years on now. Yeah. I mean, you know? like I said, Nick at night was reruns. Like yeah. I never saw any of these shows. Why? And we, I mean, we still have a hard time having adult conversations around many of these things. Oh, you know, yeah. oh, all no, these years later, saw, there was an article that it had to be 10 years ago talking about the rise of great writing and animation could have been 15 years ago. And like Brad Bird is interviewed, the people in Simpsons are interviewed and they were, and the article was about, why do you think some of some, and now I think as many do, there's a golden age of quote unquote golden age of writing going on in television. It has since changed, but this, I, this was honestly 15 or 16 years ago. It was soon after I moved to LA and they were talking about why is all the best writing going, going to animation now. And one of the people, it might've been Brad Bird interviewed said, 
if I pitched All in the Family tomorrow, I could never get it on the air unless it was animated. And he's like, that, that's why. You can not only get something produced that is pushing us and provoking us to think, but actually get audience people, not just preaching to the choir, but somebody who might not have thought that way. If the person is animated, they'll some, they sometimes somehow don't feel an affront. I'm not being made fun of. Huh. My view is not being made fun of, but oh, but oh, I, I do see why there's something wrong with what Ned is saying or Homer is saying and this kind of stuff. I think it has changed um, as as plots and characters have begun to be uh, much more complex and serialized and there's a lot more access points to them rather than them just right. being two-dimensional. But uh, but yeah, at the, at the time, I, it's just like, I was like, huh, I never thought about that. But I mean, how long ago was All in the Family? And they're like, openly yeah. talking about the 70s <laughs> yeah yeah and that was and that was episodic so it's not like they had all this you know these seasons to build into these big issues or everything right they just had to mm-hmm. nail them in a line or two yeah um i don't know i don't know what happened and what you're talking about with the animation thing that's interesting it kind of reminds me of that you know that uncanny valley thing you know where you get too close i'm gonna butcher it so anybody out there can just laugh but it's this idea with uh i think it is when they are doing like AI renders of, of people, you know, mm-hmm. making them look like when they were doing animation, Pixar and everything, and they would get really close to looking like people. Yes. It'd be too close. It'd be, and, and people would be yes. creeped out. Yes. So then they had to back it down a little bit. Ah, make the eyes that. bigger. And, you know, there was a um, discussion about it after my polar or after polar express came out. Yeah. Polar like, express, that kind of thing. Like how it's close too, you can be to realistic before it freaks people out. So I'm thinking like the parallel there, which is how close you can be to, to having people ask these big questions of themselves, like, yeah, that's too close to home. That looks too much like you. Let's animate it instead. Let's right. make you into Homer Simpson. Exactly. You know? Well, there's also a sort of an extension of something being of, of, of fabulizing. I'm making up that word, but it's going to be a word now. Something because like reading, reading Animal Farm, mm-hmm. you know, it is like, or I didn't even remember like Looney Tunes. If you watch Looney Tunes, Foghorn Leghorn, like I had no idea of all these like massive political, th- like Nixon things that read Hoover, all these stuff that right. was going on. You know, um, you're just watching it as a kid and think it's funny, but uh, that's sort of like small story, big story that's going on. Um, I'm speaking more about, I do think that animation um, is uh, is close to almost like anthropomorphizing, you know, when you're watching, when, when we are made animals, well, sometimes just stop being so defensive, stop defending our id and our ego because it couldn't possibly, they couldn't possibly be talking about me. That's a Fox. Um, right. You know, you're thinking of fantastic Mr. Fox right now. Yeah. 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 Uh, which I love, love, love. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't know. I have no, I have nothing scientific to back this up, but it's just what I'm, it's just what I'm thinking. It's just interesting to me, the people that I know, that have much more conservative lines of thinking ideologically than I do back in my hometown will watch the Simpsons and laugh their heads off. And Mm -hmm. I'm sometimes thinking, do you know what? Not like they're dumb at all. They're not, they're not dumb people I'm talking about. They're just people that have um, very different political views than I do, but they're laughing at the same joke that I'm laughing. And I'm thinking, are you laughing for the same reason I'm laughing? Cause I don't think you would. So what are you like? It's, it's the same thing as your parents with Foghorn Langhorn when you were a kid, right? right. Are you laughing at the Nixon you put down? Yeah. Yeah. And it isn't about like them not 
getting it. They're experiencing it in a different way um, that maybe just doesn't feel preached to where they can laugh at some things. I don't know. It's interesting. I find the same thing with the resurgence of graphic novels over the last 10 years. So it's a place where some great, great writing is happening. Great fiction writing and from is happening. Beautiful artistry, which I absolutely that was connected to the rise of gaming, but I don't know. I don't know. Gaming, you know, is getting better with the writing. They're actually putting a little budget into hiring decent writers. I don't. I don't game, but I don't either. You know, could... Peering over the shoulders of those who do, I'm like, oh, this isn't as bad as it used to be. Mm-hmm. There's a story to this now that's that's plausible, and the, the coder is not also the guy making the <laughs> the dialogue. You can kind of right. tell, right? You know, but the graphic novels are, I've kind of gotten back into them. They're part of my steady diet. I um, didn't, I was not a comic book or graphic novel person growing up, but I am interested in what they do with a story um, because it's mm-hmm. not unlike a short versus a feature length film um, or a short story versus um, a, a full length novel. And I don't mean that like the story has to necessarily be short in a graphic novel, but when you're distilling down your writing to the very few phrases that they do. I know some graphic novels have full text in proportion to uh, the images. So I might be getting my terms wrong, but the ones that I'm talking about have a more comic book layout where you're, you have to have a real economy of language to get the story across. And I, and I think that when that's well done, it's amazing. Um, I read fun home before it came out on Broadway and, um, I, I was just astonished. Not it. Not only is it brilliant and amazing, just absolutely amazing. It is. It is so apparent when you read it that this had to be a graphic novel. That you're like, thank God she made the choice to do this as a graphic novel. Because um, the the drawings she's choosing to do and the way she is illustrating it is part of the perspective of your narrator. So. It isn't a situation where um, they're just a picture of what she's describing. It is it is an extension of the character. What is drawn, how it's drawn, why it's drawn, when it's drawn. Um, it's a it's a beautiful use of that medium. When you're talking about the story, and you know, story is so. I, I love reading stories. I love telling stories. I love. Um, analyzing stories, tearing them apart, looking at the the craft of story arcs, all that kind of stuff. Word on the street is, and I think maybe it's our mutual friend Dana, that you really, really, really love the craft, the craft of acting. Um, I'm just kind of curious: is it is it the story that really fired you up originally? Is it is it embodying these characters? Where where does it satisfy you, sort of most deeply? Well, part of it is what we were talking about, as far as like I. I recognized that how much I enjoyed a great story and being taken on a journey, whether it was sitting around who's, with someone who's just a great tale spinner or orator or watching um, great television shows, everything from escapism to I was obsessed with uh, going to the key theater and the biograph in Washington, DC, sadly now no longer existing um, and taking the Metro in to go see foreign films and to see Pedro Maldivar's films and, Kieslowski's Blue, White, Red just blew me away and celebration and breaking uh, breaking the waves and just realizing, understanding uh, uh, the, in my opinion, the incredible benefit to also watch stories that are hard and that are tough um, and that make me think 
happiness. I remember I could not leave the movie theater, could not get up, uh, was just so stunned by like, I don't know what to do with all the thoughts in my head right now. And they're conflicting and they're punching each other. And that I, the storytelling to me was some of the first provoking of um, abstract logic and comparative reasoning that was going on where I had to really like wrestle with like, how do I feel about this? And is that okay? And going on this experience and this journey. And I, I loved having a story told to me and I wanted to know if I could tell stories and I was painting and I looked at painting as a sort of narrative journey. Um, and I was writing a little bit, but I wondered if I could do that. And when I took that first acting class, the thing that was keeping me from saying like, you guys, I want to try acting. I actually think this is what I want to do. There was, there was a couple of things. One was, uh, my adult, my, my teenage years were mostly in Virginia beach, all in Virginia beach. And there was a lovely classical theater downtown. I did not go to it. And understanding acting as a craft was not available to me. And I apologize to anybody out there in the eighties in Virginia beach. that was miss so-and-so who may have been holding an acting class. I didn't know about (laughs) somewhere, but, um, it just wasn't a thing. I mean, we had a drama club at school, but you know, they were kids putting on my fair lady with uh, white paint in their hair and stuff. And it was just not, nobody was actually talking about the craft. So I'm then watching this eight, these eighties television shows and American film at the time, not seventies American film, which is my favorite genre, but like eighties American film. And I'm thinking clearly you need to look like a model and, or no famous people. That's it. Those are your two lanes. And I don't know anyone in entertainment, not, not a soul, not anybody who's even like my cousin once met <laughs> like blah, blah, blah. When I was in Arizona, there was a girl on the, on the other side of my street whose mom's sister cousin, I think was Pam Dauber and Mork and Minnie was on at the time. And Pam and uh, Minnie used to wear these, the big giant seventies brown glasses that like swoop down on the sides. Mm-hmm. And she had multiple pairs for the show and gave them one that they could keep on a bookshelf. And me and a bunch of other kids would stand in line in a yard to be allowed to come in one at a time to touch Pam Dauber's sunglasses on the bookshelf. <laughs> I went more than once. I want you to know. Oh, that's awesome. So Virginia beach was not, I didn't even know Pam, a Pam Dauber sunglass spot in Virginia beach, nothing. Um, And I also began to not look at all. I I didn't, and I know a lot of people are sitting out there. I understand that I I started with a leg up being white, blue eyed, blonde uh, at that time to get into my career. And I don't want anybody out there to think that I don't understand that uh, I had some obstacles completely removed from my path that others who are people of color did not. And I get it. But I, at the time when I was like, guys, I'm going to be a professional actor, um, was about 40 pounds, 40 to 45 pounds heavier than I am now and had crew cut jet black hair. Um, and there was a lot of body image issues about what people thought I should be allowed to play and what roles I should be allowed to play. And which turned out to be all great. I came at acting from a character actor's point of view and was trained that way. And those were the only parts anybody would let me near. And, um, and it's the best thing that could have ever happened to me. I was never called in for the, the, the girlfriend role. I was like, (laughs) they wouldn't let me play the love interest in anything. Um, I think it was the crew cut, the crew cut black hair probably. (laughs) Well, then my blonde hair grew out, but by then it was like, 
and then I lost weight just because I was so tired. Once I started working and I was thrilled with it. And I guess I should say that the magic happened when I took this first class with Lenny Raybuck and, um, and she uses the, uh, the practical handbook, which is the Atlantic theaters. It's called practical aesthetics. It's a, it's a particular methodology technique for breaking down a script and breaking down a character. And it's a very practical as, as is noted in the title (laughs) approach to acting. It is not a magical touchy feely approach. I've since taken classes that are in that kind of stuff. And I've got a tool bag of lots of different things, but this kind of initial breaking down, um, of, cause I'm a work horse type of actor. I find the magic in the details. I find, and it's the same in painting. I find the magic in the work and that the sum will be greater than the parts and that you just have to like keep, you know, like restaining, sanding down wood and refinishing like a wood piece of furniture to me is religion. It's just meditating on that and taking it step by step. So when somebody was able to show me that getting to a place where you could ever tell a story where they're going to wonder about your character when they leave the room, because you'd made such a three dimensional person is not chance it's not luck. It's not magic. And it's not your physical appearance. It's doing the work was for some people, I think, you know, they want to be famous. So they want a lot of other glamorous parts of the business and that they probably don't like that part. I was thrilled. That was what lit me up was finding out, oh, I could, I could study my way into becoming incrementally better every year. I'll do that because I can control that. I don't know if anybody will ever hire me, hire me, but I can definitely control that part of it. Um, and then I noticed that people in frequently in their senior year in college and right out of college had this big issue with, I was the star in all my college theater plays and now no one's hiring me and seeming to have this, there seemed to be this, this bridge that wasn't being built between academic and professional. So I started early on in college asking my acting teachers, like many of them had um, acting companies or groups on the weekend that read Linny did with small beer theater company where they're just reading new plays and it's no money and it's in a basement. Um, And I was like, well, can I read the stage directions? Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not paid. And I was like, I don't care that, you know, kind of professional actors. There was a professional director there. I was watching them and learning. And then in DC, you can also um, volunteer usher at many theaters. I don't know if you still can. I volunteered usher at Woolly Mammoth, one of my favorite theaters. And one of my greatest accomplishments that I've ever had was becoming, uh, they made me an acting uh, member of their company eventually after I did volunteer ushering, uh, volunteer running props, volunteer running crew, um, volunteer box office. But I got to watch the same play with the same brilliant cast 25 nights in a row and watching these tiny little changes and nuances. Um, uh, and like, okay, what's the architecture of the story that has to be there? And then how many different ways can you slightly say this line? Oh, she said that line barely different. She decided to do this big intake before she spoke. She didn't do that last night. And like watching the domino effect of that made her scene partner re-examine his line reading back and the volleyball and how, how much that made it totally real. It was so captivating to watch pacing and breath 
alter in the moment and, and intention getting altered in the moment and understanding that there was still great honor being given to the writing. I mean, when I came out and did my first show and people were saying stuff like, I just don't think I'd say it like that. Can I change this? I was like, oh, you would never say that to a playwright. Are you kidding? I was like, oh. Do you have that same eye for detail in, in the in the rest of your life? Or is that just because that's where your passion is? Are, are, are you noticing everything? Like the neighbors, uh, if the neighbors change something in their window across the street, do you notice it? I'm quite observant, but it's not... I wouldn't say, cause I'm always asking my script supervisors, like, I, uh, I'm like, are you just like a nightmare at home? Do you notice if someone's moved the forks and like, um, you know, uh, or edit continuity people, editors, all of that. But, um, I'm very present and I am that way in my work as well. I think you have to leave your homework at the door when you get there so that you can be organic and alive. And it pains me when you work it doesn't pain me. It's harder for me. And I feel a little bit sad when you, when you work with an actor and I have very few times in my life and it's been a long time since this has happened that you can tell they prearrange their performance (laughs) in their trailer or in their car. And they are going to do their damn lines the way they plan them, no matter what you do. They don't care if you cry on your half or whatever. And that's kind of sad. I'm like, well, that's kind of missing the point of a collaborative art form. Um, but I, so I mostly just present. I'm 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 messy. I think I'm. It's a good question because now I'm thinking like I think I'm actually the opposite. Like I ha- it has to be pointed out to me that I've accrued a pile of papers as tall as me in a corner, and I don't even. I'm like, what? Where? Right. Um. Because that's not where your passion is, right? But where your passion is, you're fully engaged. Exactly. Uh, I can't really deep task at all. At, like, so when all. <laughs> It's okay. You're not supposed to. Multitasking is a myth. Being good at multitasking is a myth. Every study shows that multitasking only slows you down in the long run, even in the short run. Every time you're distracted from your main task, (laughs) women are better at it than men. But yeah, no, multitasking, stay focused on your task. So going back to when you decided to to engage, you said a little while ago about, you know, I'm going to do this. Guys, I think I'm going to become an actor. Mm -hmm. Was that a singular moment for you? Did you have, we always try to get at this, did you have a moment or a period of time where you had to risk everything to do it? Like you're going to leave painting behind or you were going to be a, an archaeologist and or just, was there a, a moment that you had to take the risk? I think or was there were that... lots of small moments. There was being okay with saying it out loud and being okay that some people laughed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I... I operate better from an underdog position anyway, uh, always have in all areas of my life. Um, so I was okay that some people were like, that's not going to work out. And some people said exactly that. They were like, that's not what you're going to do for a living. I was like, mm, yeah, I am. Um, because I decided I wanted to be an actor. Then I decided that I'm going to be a professional actor. And then I decided this is how I'm going to make my living. And I said like, I don't I might have to have five other jobs to string together how to pay my bills. I hope not. I hope I can make my entire living from it, but I am definitely going to professionally be an actor as my career. Um, I said it pretty soon. I just thought that, uh, there's no other option. Now I did have many, many day jobs after that, (laughs) um, to piece it together, but I had, I was willing to take that risk. My painting teachers, um, some of them were quite sad, um, not like 
dubious that I would be able to do something else. They were sad because I, I had some wonderful painting mentors that truly believed in me in that for that career. Um, mm-hmm. that that's what I should be doing. And so they were sad and I had skeptics and I had a couple of, t- I, I think I'm trying to remember for me, I, I, my dad, my dad died when I was 18 and, uh, I had his life insurance to split with my sister. And that was pretty much all the financial gain we got from that. Not that I would want any gain if I could trade it for him, but that's what we got of that. Um, and so I decided to just pay it for my college in cash. I was like, I don't want any, I don't want any school debt. I constantly hear from people that like that, that ruined them, that ruined all of their dreams and they couldn't get out from under this rock forever. And I'm like, look it up, got to get rid of it. So I had that support system. So I'm, I think that allows one to take a little bit of a risk. I wasn't thinking, I knew that I could support myself with like a little part-time day job for a couple of years while I tried to act. And that's, that's a, that's an amazing, um, gift and I, not live well, but like, <laughs> I was fine with eating ramen and, and hot. Dogs and you were in, like you were in DC at this point, right? I, I was, I just was so excited to just be all in on it, you know, but I, one of my first jobs I auditioned for, um, and at that time auditions were sometimes auditions that were allowing non-union actors because I was, I was non-equity at the time would be in the newspaper sometimes. Uh, and the, is it city paper? Yeah. City paper. So I showed up for one and, uh, there was no script and they said, if you come early, you can read the script. So I did. And the director was there and he was like, you know, there was just not, I, I was, I guess I was so early, but I don't think a lot of people showed up anyway. And he hadn't yet printed out sides because it didn't even say um, the parts. You were just supposed to show up and and be asked to do cold reads. And I did. And he he said, well, just start reading the play out loud, then read all the parts. So I did. And I made up different characters for each of them. Um, and uh, we got about halfway through and he said, he said, you're really, he said, you're really, really great. Um, I was so excited because it was the first thing that had nothing to do with school, not a teacher calling for me, not an academic program, whatever. And I was like, Oh my gosh, thank you. And he was like, well, which, which role do you think you're interested in? And I wasn't looking for size of role. It was a Commedia dell'arte piece. And I wasn't looking for where I, I need to be a lead or I need to be the star of it. I was just like, if it's a comedy, I, I'm a laugh whore. I wanted the, what I thought was the funniest that I, um, character you could build. And so I own this French can-can singer who is revealed, has a horrible French accent and isn't even French, um, and is terrible and ridiculous. And is just, um, it was a very Madeline Kahn role and that's why I wanted it. (laughs) It was very good blazing saddles and stuff. And, um, so that's why I wanted it. But I was in the body that I was describing a little while ago. And he looked at me with such shock. And he said, well, of course not that role. And he was like, I mean, the lead male has to be attracted to her. <laughs> and he said it so matter-of-factly that it hurt a million times more than if he had... You think? Just, it was just... I think I was... I think I was wow. 19. Because I started going to do things that were not affiliated with school early. Because again, I was very afraid of that weird bridge. 
where people get out of school and think like the world owes them something. I'm like, yeah, start before that, buddy. So yeah. I, uh, I was like, uh, um, and he goes, well, can you do some other role? And I, I thought that's so rude. It's so awful. I hate you, but I want to be in this play and, and okay. Like I, I can accept that I don't look like whatever you think is attractive to a man. Um, and that is your choice. There was another, there was another part that I thought, well, this part's funny. And he said, well, I'm playing that role, meaning himself. And I was like, wow, this is not going well. And you know what? I just don't want to start my professional career this way and feeling this small. So I put on my backpack and I was just like, please don't cry till you get outside. Please don't cry till you get outside. And before I could get to the door, he, he called me back and he was like, fine, fine. I mean, if you're that committed, if you're that committed, you can have the professor role. <laughs> and, I, and I did. And he and I had a we had a great working relationship and I did a great job with the role. And I was very, I was very happy that I, at least, I mean, at 19, you know, now I probably would have said, how dare you about like the other, the other comment. But at 19, I was pretty proud of myself. Like I, I, I stood up for myself as best I could at the time. Yeah. That must've been really hard. It's probably something that at this point in time, he probably regrets saying. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? I've had, I've had people in, I've been in Los Angeles auditions where they're like, well, she has, no, we mean like she has, she's an attractive lead. And I'm like, yes. And they're like, but I mean like hot, hot, you know what we mean, Ray? Like hot, like super hot, hot. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm still having this (laughs) goddamn conversation with people. (laughs) That sucks. That is not super nice. That's not super nice. Nice. And I'm not at all selling a lot of men short who aren't attracted to this one tiny thing they're talking about. Right. Exactly. That's, that's their fantasy world. They're creating there. <laughs> how, how long, how long did it take for you once you got into it, once you were out there to, did, was it right away that if somebody said, what do you do? He said, Oh, I'm an actor. Or did that take a long time before you felt comfortable saying that was your, I said it right from the beginning. Did you? People that's great. Say, like, well, like working on something and I would say auditioning, I'm auditioning, or I would say, um, you know, I did a lot of non-union theater, community theater, um, anything to learn. Like I said, ushering for free. One of my best friends, Chris Walker, and I would just read scenes from other plays and work on our shit together on my front porch. Um, you can always find a way to act. You can't always find a way to be paid for it, <laughs> but you right. always find a way to act. Um, so I felt comfortable telling people like I'm an actor. Cause I mean, six of seven days a week I had, I had, you, you were acting. I was, I like that. It was in my, on my porch, but I, I was acting and you know, people, people made fun of me and I just, I just, I just didn't care. And almost anybody that, was making fun of me, had some day job that they secretly hated and were just doing X on the weekends. And I was like, you know what? You're just, you're just sad that you didn't take the road you wanted to take. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a good piece of advice when people are deciding that they want to do a career or dump the old career to take on a new one is to own it right away. Just I say, yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a painter. Like, yeah. Cause I, yeah. I know, um, but how do you feel about like, how do you feel about like anybody who self-publishes a book that they wrote over the weekend is now saying I'm a, I'm a writer. You're a professional writer. Do you think that's okay? 
<laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. And I, I would have said, I mean, it's tough. I've had no problem saying that I'm a writer for years and years because I've made my living writing all kinds of things. I mean, it might be um, uh, a, a, a treatment for a show here, uh, ad copy there, whatever. Over the years, I, I mean, I've written, I've written and gotten paid decently. I've written haikus for carpets. No kidding. <laughs> No kidding. I, I think I've, I've written a couple of dozen haikus for like, you know, $50,000 carpets. Um, I mean, I've written anything. And so I was very comfortable saying that I'm a writer. You know what? A year ago when I moved to LA, it got different because I'm in LA. Everybody's a writer. And when they say, oh, do you write? I'm like, well, it, it felt funny for the first time. It felt funny. doesn't mean I don't say that I'm a writer when people ask me, but I'm like, I'm a writer. And, you know, and I've got this thing called the Super Nice Club, <laughs> you know, how do I feel about somebody saying they're a writer if they, I think it's okay, because I don't know if they self-published some whatever. There's no great self-published stuff out there. No, yeah, no, no. I, I just, because I don't know. Like, if someone just, there are people that are, especially, you know, with the internet, there are people, there's a lot of ways to call yourself an actor and a writer <laughs> these days where you're like, Okay, well, I mean, I guess it's kind of the same thing as anybody can call their art art. Yeah, I think it's on me or you or anyone else to discover what they mean by that, you know? Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, and the so, path that goes down sometimes is not pleasant on the other side either, because if, if even if you are a working actor, we'll qualify it as that, um, you get asked, like, and I'm sure you get this too, really, have you written anything I've I've seen? Or have you? Or have you, or if it's me, it'd be like, um, well, have you been in anything that I that I would know? Um, especially that's easy for me. I just say no, because <laughs> that's the truth. I nope. want to say I don't know. Do you have shitty taste? Let me figure it out. Um, because you get in a position where you're like listing your resume, and then you feel like an absolute boob. Uh, <laughs> right. Like, nope, I didn't see that one. No, I don't like sitcoms. Well, so I haven't seen anything. You also specifically get they're like. Uh, when you like say anything, trying to, to help them so they don't keep asking, and then they'll be like, "Oh no, no, no! I meant film." That kind of <laughs> that kind of touches on. I was during uh, my my teams, the the Nice Work Podcast teams. Ex thank, thanks, team. You guys are great. Exhaustive research for this show. Uh, they found something interesting in uh, a podcast you did with that that other big podcaster, Mark Marin, where you guys got into imposter syndrome, and that really really resonated with me. You know, this idea that whatever you're doing, no matter how good you are at it, you just don't feel comfortable. You feel like you're kind of faking it and somebody's going to find you out. And this, this has come up quite a few times on this show, probably because so many of the guests are exploring creative careers mm -hmm. and it's something, you know, you're never really necessarily where you want to be not quantifiable you exactly you it, right or not regardless of whether someone hires you as a mathematician <laughs> but yeah and so somebody's going to find you out that you're not actually as good as as uh you know that imposter syndrome thing i don't know it haunts me it always has mm -hmm. even in a new classroom i just always like i'm not i'm not one of you <laughs> you know that kind of thing i don't know if that's quite the same thing but i found it interesting that you guys got into that and also that I think, I think Mark said that he sort of had some anxiety around it too. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh my God, of all people, mm -hmm. you know, the guy who just seems so much like he's owning life. Right. Right. And it's such a great reminder that uh, maybe, maybe most of us, maybe most of us feel that way at some point, feel like we're kind of faking it till we make it. 
no matter what we've done in the past? Have a life examined in any way and are interested in self-reflection um, for growth, hopefully, but occasionally for torture, um, <laughs> um, then you would have to, at some point, encounter elements of imposter syndrome because even, you know, to the highest degree, there's this existential quality of it where I sometimes am hyper aware of myself outside of the world, not like floating out of body experience, but just like I said, of like, is that what I like? What if I've just been waking up saying I liked oranges for 25 years and I don't actually like oranges? Have I really considered this? Like I have these thoughts all the time. And, and um, but I, when you're acting like, you're right. When you're in a creative profession, um, but I, in a freelance uh, profession, an unquantifiable talent of some sort, yeah, you can judge yourself by saying like, well, let's list the people who have hired you, Todd, to teach, coach, or write something for them. Um, do you think that the majority of these people you would categorize as very intelligent and affected. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure your answer is going to be yes. My answer for my stuff would be yes. But then I start playing this game in my head of like, but you don't possibly think that there aren't a ton of talented writers and talented actors who didn't get the job, right? So should they be sitting at home thinking they suck just because they didn't get the jobs that I got? Well, no, that's not true at all. So then it cancels it out. Then my brain goes, mm. so the equation is not getting hired means you're good. Right. And it's like, Oh, right. It, okay. So it's not, so what, what does mean I'm good? Like what's, and you just, just awards. That's it. The only thing that matters is awards. You know what? Let's, let's lobby. I'm screwed. <laughs> there are a lot of people out there that think that you should, that you should have a shelf full. Um, There's a lot maybe we should very lovely to me. We should add actors and, and painters and writers to Yelp. You know, they could just yelp no, actors out there. Are you? <laughs> that would be amazing, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but this imposter thing you guys also touched on, and it's funny. I'm talking imposter syndrome, and here I am, kind of riffing off another podcast. You know, with Mark, but I adore Mark Maron. He's great. He's and, fantastic. Uh, he's a fan. Um, I just, you know, I'm sure you're listening, Mark. Big love to you. And ugh, Lynn Shelton, the whole just uh, anyway, terrible. But you also talked about this fear of waking up and living in a cardboard box. Yeah. Right. And God damn, that's been a lifelong fear of mine. Like stop working, you know, or suck at what you're doing and you, you're out, you're done. Mm -hmm. You know, you're on the street. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, mind you, I lived in a car when I was in college. Sure. We didn't have enough hours at Tower Records. So that could be kind of where it's Tower really, Records, but nice. Yeah. I, yeah, I know. Right. Does anybody remember Tower Records? I do. I couldn't get hired there, but I worked at Kent Mill yeah. Records. In you weren't enough of an asshole. Okay. They only hired assholes at Tower Records. That's the truth because I think customers expected to me to be demeaned a little bit. That was the whole mm -hmm. thing at Tower. Um, you know, it's not as bad. I look back now and I kind of go, oh, I've done some cool stuff. I think I'm okay, you know, for now. Right. Right. Um, you were living in a car, you, you were saying. Oh, well, that was the college, the lean years. I think that that's why part of me is like, I can never be secure enough. Mm -hmm. I always still have these flashes of like, God, I might be homeless sometime. Right. 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 And I do think that most of us are, no matter how much money you have, there's no such thing as a permanence of wealth. You know, like I just watched the, uh, have you, did you ever watch the Imelda Marcos documentary? Mm-mm. 
I mean, she lost all of her shoes overnight, sent a shutter up my spine. Right. <laughs> but anybody can lose it all in a minute. Yeah. And when you really know that and see that happening, it's, it's a scary thing. Mm-hmm. Does that propel you at all? Or you think that's more helpful for you, your sort of fear around that? Or you think it's, it's I don't think destructive? It I think, um, yeah. well, what we were talking about, like a life examined. Yes, I think that's helpful. I think a healthy level of my um, making sure that I understand that I need to continue to strive to be better and better at what I do. Every single scene I'm handed And if I'm not being hired, then work on something else that will make me a better actor for the day. That has been true all 25 plus years that I've been working. That is a concrete thing that is untouchable. And so that grounds me to go like, put your head down and do the work. I, and I, don't think it's good for me to think that it's a fluke. I don't think it's good for me to think that I won the lottery. Mm -hmm. I don't really like the word luck. I do understand that there is luck involved with which opportunities you're uh, afforded. There's also some um, privilege as we talked about um, with the way I look. Didn't come from money. Didn't come from an entertainment place though. And what's my point? I guess like, I think I have to. Wa- I think I have to watch it to not dip too far in the "I don't deserve to be here" because that's where I can go with mm. those thoughts. I think it's good to think about those things and to understand that there's a million brilliant authors and a million brilliant actors that we will never see their work. Maybe not a million, but certainly a hundred thousand. You know, of like I think about that all the time, like books that we've never read. Um, you know, a poet. There's a poet out there somewhere that we might not ever hear, and a musician and a rapper. Um, and we might not get to all of them. And uh, there is some luck involved with, and it's just some chance. It's not even luck. It's just chance who was where one day when they met so-and-so and, and this right. happened. But I know there's an old saying, and I forget who said it, that said, uh, you know, anybody, opportunity is the door opening. But if you want to be able to stay in the room, you better have done your work beforehand. Cause yeah, that, that was me. <laughs> so, <laughs> because when I start, when I show up to set on like Saul and I'm working with people that to my mind, the actors, the crew, and the writers, and Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan are the top of the game, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. Doesn't agreed. Um, and you know, and I'm watching Bob Odenkirk, and I'm watching Giancarlo Esposito, and Jonathan Banks, and Tony Dalton, and Michael Mando, and Patrick Fabian, and um, every single guest star on there. You know, Ed, Ed Begley Jr., the brilliant Michael McKean for seasons and seasons. Like you're learning. If you're not learning, you're an idiot. Like you, you should be taking shit in, taking shit in. And then when I realized that they also thought that, they always thought this, but I began to let myself absorb that they also believe that I'm value added there. I'm not showing up and phoning it in and can't believe, like I said, that I won the lottery. I'm going home and doing the same amount of work I did when I had to prove that I could play the professor because, because it's the part of the job I love. And I want to help tell the story. I want, I should be making the scene better, not just not destroying it. (laughs) Right, right, right. um, I, I, I should understand Tom Schnauz is um, he's one of our brilliant writer directors, um, the way he punctuates things and the phrasing and all of these things are keys and gifts and, I'll, I just mean to say that the, you said, do I do it? Does it, does it fuel me? 
these days it's fueling me more and it's, it's, it's late, but better late than never to consider with humility that I'm value added to a project. Um, it is, it is more worthwhile. And I have found in the last two years, as I've started to talk to people about development and, um, Mm -hmm. talking about new stories that, and even helping people with other projects and being asked to give notes on scripts and realizing like, Oh, right. I've helped people with scripts for 25 years. Like it is respectful to, to act like you, like you have a right to be at that table to act. So like, Oh gosh, not me in some ways is disrespecting the choice that person made when they hired you. Right. I remember yeah. um, in theater when I first started working um, equity theater, big theater, Willie Mammoth theater, it was very important. And my curtain calls were ridiculous. I was very squirmy and I wouldn't do like a normal bow. I was kind of like, and I know your audience can't see me, but it was like sh- shoulders up and kind of like, ah, no, forget I'll stop, stop. And this business. And I thought I was being true to my sort of embarrassment level to have people clap for you. And um, Howard Shawitz, who's one of my favorite theater mentors, um, the, the creator of Woolly Mammoth Theater, he said, Ray, I need to talk to you about your curtain call. And I was like, I know it's so hard for me. I don't want to just, I don't want to just like stand out there and be like, look at me, look at me. And I, I thought like, isn't this an incredible amount of humility that I have? And he said, the, <laughs> he goes, the curtain call is not for you. And he said it much nicer than I'm saying it now, but in my head, I heard it hard. (laughs) He said, the curtain call is not for you. The curtain call is for the audience, for them to have the grace and the dignity to be able to thank you for a performance that they have enjoyed and for going on this journey. Please don't take that away from them. And I was like, oh. And that was 20... 18 to 20 years ago. And I just started thinking about it again in the last two years of like, have some respect for the people that hired you and are working with you and have some respect for all the people that have hired you before that, that you have cumulatively become value added in the room, (laughs) in your vocation. What I like about all of what you just said is it touches on something that, that I believe in this just simple idea that your, your competence is your confidence. Mm Mm-hmm. Or the other way around, your confidence is your competence. But, you know, to, to trust your abilities because you've worked on them, right? So no matter what you're doing, you know, but it's it's really easy to second guess and doubt yourself. But, but if, if you put in the work. you're going to hinder your work, then you are disrespecting the person that employed you. And you're disrespecting your scene partner because you are closing yourself off to doing some great work. If you're going to wander around, like wondering if you should, if you should be there, Vincent Peters say all the time, confident enough to collaborate. Those are the only people they want to hire. Cause they also are like, if you're really good, you're open to great ideas from anywhere in the room and you show up prepared and you know your stuff and you don't have an ego about it. And I, and I love that. So that's just kind of like, do your work and, work work your ass off and then get there and be open to this being a collaborative um, art form. And I used to think that feeling, and I'm by no means ever going to walk around with a massive ego and like (laughs) bloviating about my brilliant ideas, (laughs) but there is definitely a healthy middle that's different than me. Just like, like we said, thinking like, I don't know how I got here. I do know how I got here. I do know how I got here. You put the work in and kind of related to that, just in the larger community, creative community, I've, I've hired a lot of 
photographers and things as over the years as a creative director. And if you're creative out there, don't cut your rates for people. Stick to your rates. You know, if they come to you and say, hey, I want to hire you to, to do this project, there's, I understand it because I used to be there. I mean, I still am there internally, but I used to be there externally too. You kind of want to like, oh, you know, sure, I'll do that. And I'll, I'll give you a deal on my day rate or on my hourly or on this project. Don't do that because it just reeks of, of, of a lack of confidence in the quality of what you're going to put out. Hmm. Stick to your guns, stick to your rates. Yeah, I think. I mean, maybe people say, yeah, but I want to make sure I get the job. You'll get the job. If you're good, you'll get the job. Right. You know? So you did mention Saul a minute ago, Better Call Saul, TV show. Maybe some of you heard of it. If you haven't, go watch it. And uh, for now, that's your calling card role. Kim Wexler. That's the one that most people know and have seen. Uh, I'm sure there will be future characters that will eclipse Kim. But just because she's your biggest, is she your favorite so far? She is my favorite, but not because it's the biggest. Mm-hmm. It's um, Now I've done like, and there's a lot of comedy in Saul, uh, but I have to say like I've also done comedic roles that I've loved. Just It's hard for me to compare roles. Like I fall in love with each of them individually. Um, I play this character, Gail, a UPS driver in Bill Corbett's The Big Slam, directed by Casey Stangle at Woolly Mammoth. And it's, couldn't be more opposite from Kim Wexler. <laughs> um, and it's one of my all-time favorite roles. But there are similarities about both of them. They are completely different. Uh, Gail has... Of an extremely limited vocabulary and is constantly mistaken for just an airheaded ditz. And then it's revealed, not that she was faking that, but that she has uh, an incredible intelligence in other areas people had not thought about. And so I'm now thinking like, on the surface, very, very different, but they are both characters that people second guessed are not aware of the power that they have. And I do love that. And those are probably two of my favorite characters. Um, Kim's journey. I have loved this character from the very, very beginning, even when I knew very little about her other than what I was making up in my head. But the writing they supply me with, the support system they supply me with for me to um, investigate the beats and we do our scripts word for word to the letter. I don't find that limiting. I find it very freeing because they will really let me play with um, where the beats are. Their scripts don't, some scripts are extremely clear, like, Oh, this is two people arguing. And then it actually became um, flirtatious and then it went somewhere else and they became despondent. Theirs are harder to read in a good way. There's a lot of, complex humanity in the scenes that you can discover by where you put the pauses, um, whether or not you say a line with a smirk or you don't, um, whether or not I say it to someone's face or walking away. Like it's, it's, um, it's a tightrope that's really fun to work on and really fun to play. And they encourage you doing it 50 different ways, which is so much fun as an actor. It's such a fantastic exercise intellectually. But in addition to that, another reason that I love her is because I've, I've gotten to grow, I, I, not, not as an actor for sure, but I'm talking just the character. I've never gotten to um, play six years of someone's life. Do you know what I mean? And, and right. on something where they're allowed to change. She keeps evolving. She reacts to what happened and, and then this happens and everything is 
cumulative, um, you don't get that very often. It's very new. And then Breaking Bad was one of the first ever that allowed your main characters to actually change and be extremely different where they- A lot, a lot. Like a lot, a lot. Um, And so, you know, whether I've done a two hour play or other series that I've done for, that have gone one or two years, I guess Franklin and Bash went longer than that. I was recurring on that. Um, But the level of evolution, and I loved my Franklin and Bash character. That was another one that I absolutely loved. But the level of evolution that I'm allowed to explore by nature of the way they write, the storytelling AMC and Sony are supporting Vincent Peter doing and the number of years we've been on those things all come together that I've been able to keep peeling onion layers on this very strange, mysterious, (laughs) funny, weird, isolated woman. That's just like fascinating to me. And so that, so she's by far my favorite. (laughs) So I know this must come up a lot, but for the the Saul fans that are out there that are listening to Get Nuggets, Kim has one one season to go. What's it like now being able to see the show's horizon for you? Well, I can't. I have I have yet to predict accurately what they were going to do for a new season once. <laughs> like I don't. Right, know but, you, but you know you have one season left. Are you kind of like? I am not ready to get out of this sandbox. Not one bit. um yeah we're gonna shoot 13 episodes i don't know how many i'm in i don't know what they're doing with the character i don't have a clue um i know they will she she will remain as complex as she always has been it's i i mean the good news is we're not a show that the network told you you're over before and, and everybody has to scramble and write a finale that's not fitting because they are befitting because they didn't know we were ending. We They know and they always have known this. They didn't draw out a whole Bible and they'll tell you that, that like there's no specific Bible that they've known um, all episodes from the beginning, but they've had advanced knowledge that they themselves, Vince Peter chose, they wanted to end it at this number of episodes. So they're getting to write the finale exactly as they want to. And AMC and Sony are so fantastic in, in their um, allowance of that and, and support of that and encouragement of that. So I at least feel 300% confident that my character is in no better hands than theirs. Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like whatever they deem is the best ending for my character, I, I, I will know that it is. I will know that it is. And I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm not looking forward to saying goodbye to her, but I'm looking forward to see what they write. <laughs> um, AMC's president, Sarah Barnett, I, I saw this, came across this quote from her that I just love, which she's talking about, because you just referenced how much you have faith in AMC allowing the story to be told best, mm-hmm. right? But she's talking about the whole sort of streaming wars and the, the, this crazy world of just voluminous content mm-hmm. that we're in right now, right? She said, the magic is in what the algorithm can't find, what data doesn't touch. We don't think the only working business model is massive global scale. We don't want to make tons of things, just good things. Mm. I love that. We don't want to make tons of things, just good things. And I'm hoping that Hollywood abides by that. Or that you know, uh, AMC dominates enough that they have to. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's even possible? Uh, that's above my pay grade. I don't. I know. I just. I don't I'm know. just being wishful. I think. 
I wanted to talk about linoleum a little bit because science fiction comedy drama, that's right up my alley. That sounds oh, amazing. Such a beautiful film. It's so it's so great. Yeah. When is it when's it coming out? When I don't know. It? Colin West wrote and directed it. I hope it comes out soon. Um I'm sure they're gonna do the festival circuit. It's so great. It's a beautiful story that is very hard to say much about without giving away some beautiful twists and turns in it because there's a there's a time travel element to it. I was just sold a science fiction comedy drama. Okay, so real quick, super nice challenge. Do you have a challenge you put out to the members of the super nice club? Just something they can do to make their world a little nicer or maybe the world a little nicer? Anything? I've been hearing this challenge voiced different ways, uh, not as a challenge, but I, uh, the last week there has been, oh, I know what it came from, Chappelle's monologue on SNL. And then there was an NPR piece today talking about gratitude and um, the, 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 the booing lift humans get from giving to someone. And that person brought up the same thing that Chappelle brought up in that monologue, which is try doing something great for someone that doesn't deserve it, quote unquote, deserve it. Oh, and OK. And probably will not show any gratitude. Wow. Okay, that is a that's a big challenge. I have to even I have to think of find someone around me that I could even, huh? Well, when he all right doesn't deserve it, he's talking about like when people want to gauge, um, which. In his case, he was talking about you know uh, uh, a black person or a person of color, but also like you know when some people are like with a homeless person, they're like, well, I don't want to give money to the ones that are just going to use it for drugs, and it's like, right. worry about what they're going to use it for. Yeah. Just, just do, just give, just give that guy that you really wish wouldn't hang out at the gas station. Give him a sandwich. Just be nice. <laughs> just be nice. Okay, challenge accepted. Okay. Uh, and if you do it out there and you have an interesting experience, please message message me, folks, or post it up on the socials. Would love to see some examples of, of what y'all came up with. And then, lastly, lastly, Ray, real quick, do you have a question for me? Anything? I don't edit these. You can just fire away. When did you say I want to be I want to be a writer? When were you comfortable with just announcing like, nope, I'm a professional writer? Um, it took me a little while. It did because I had to sort of say my my dad was a writer, but he was never no, he made his living as a writer. He was a writer, but he was also had a big years of just sort of being this recluse that I never saw that was a writer, but what did he write? We don't know. So I didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want to be like my dad, who's sort of this bohemian writer, but didn't write. Mm -hmm. After he died, I went through all his papers and found out that he did write. Um, but uh, I would say that I was I was in my 30s, mm -hmm. probably. Uh, and I would often couch it and uh, I'm a writer, photographer. I don't know. It was a long time before I just, yeah, I'm a writer. I was, I was in my 30s, mm -hmm. definitely, before that happened. Sometimes I still struggle with it. It depends on, I think pretty much, you know, if I've been getting paid lately yeah, <laughs> for something that I've been writing, you know? Yeah. So sometimes it feels more genuine. Like I said earlier, moving to LA, oh boy, it's a different kind of thing. Especially now, you know, I'm 49 and to say, oh, I'm a writer. And they say, well, have you done anything? I'm like, well, I'm not necessarily that. Although I, yes, I've written scripts. I have a pile of scripts that I've written, you know, mm -hmm. but I'm not, I'm not that writer. You know, I'm behind the scenes. I'm developing stuff for people. I'm helping, you know, it's a conversation that I just feel really awkward about having. Sure. And I should get over it. You know, this is a good reminder to get over it. Getting over it here in LA, especially um, with some of the peer group that I'm, I have here, I, I, the imposter syndrome kicks in in a really big way. Yeah. 
It does. But, um, but, but I'm a good writer. You're also surrounded by people that you actually think yeah. Yeah. are posers and full of shit. And you're thinking in the back of your head, like, dude, I don't want to be like that. <laughs> and, and just to be clear, I'm a very good writer. I'm a very good writer. I'm a very good writer. Um, right. Very good script writer. Yeah. Very good anything, <laughs> anything at all. My ego is not small at all when it comes to my writing. It's more just when you say it, like we talked about earlier, the expectation of the ensuing conversation yeah, yeah. just kind of is a little deflating to me sometimes. And that's not for a lack of pride in my craft. It's just because I'm not used to LA yet. Mm. Yeah. And I love it here for the, for the record. <laughs> All right. <laughs> for the record. I, I mean, I only know it during COVID, but from what I've seen of my house, it's oh. uh, it's a great city. Yeah. Ray, thank you for being on. Thank you for all of your time and your wisdom and hopefully um, inspired some folks out there to to get into what it is that they want to be doing uh, or to double down on what you're doing and be more, more confident about how good you are at it. Or if you're not, what can you do to get better? You know? Yeah. 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 Put in some work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Look forward to the last season. I really look forward to linoleum. I'm going to be honest. The linoleum is the one that I'm the most excited about. So, so I can't wait for everyone yeah. to see it. It's so great. And your your Colin West is going to blow you away. And Jim Gaffigan is brilliant in it. All right. Well, hey, have a good one. Thank you. Talk to you soon. <laughs> and there you have it. A super nice conversation with the super nice, super, super nice Ray Seahorn. She's funny and silly smart and absolutely dedicated to her craft, which really inspires me, hopefully you, to, to pour even more of myself into mine. When, when I said hopefully you, I didn't mean for you to pour more of yourself into mine. You know what I mean? Like me into mine, you into yours. Okay. I just want to be clear because I'm not always clear. I'm often, I'm often unclear. I'm a murky dude. It's just how it goes. I shouldn't probably have a podcast. Anyway, it's just satisfying, isn't it? To get better and better at what you do. Mostly because that often requires getting better and smarter and more informed at and about many things. For example, um, let's say you're a chef. Um, well, to be the best, you're going to have to learn a lot about what history, uh, agriculture, even things like how knives are made. Pretty soon you're going down a rabbit hole about like feudal Japan and ancient foraging techniques. And it's just great. Or maybe, maybe you're a realtor, but to be the best, you want to learn about human psychology. You want to master reading body language. If you really want to master being a realtor, these are things you'll want to know. When you dive into something, like really dive in, pretty soon you find out that, get this, Everything is connected. It's amazing. This big web of ours. It's really, it is. It's amazing. I love it. I love you for listening to this podcast, for putting up with me. And uh, next week, next week, we have Ophelia Chong, aka the short yellow gnome. She is a wonder and she's going to be talking to us about her passion, which is mushrooms, all sorts of mushrooms, but especially magic mushrooms. We're going to have a great talk. If you're into psychedelics and the medical applications of psychedelics, that's going to be your podcast. All right. So until then, stay nice, everyone. Just wanna be
place 